Let's go before the Lord in prayer as we look at his word this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for the powerful work that you have done for us on the cross. Lord, we have rejoiced, we have meditated on, we've considered just your amazing work of salvation for us in song this morning. We have considered it through the reading of your word, through prayer. Lord, indeed, I, I, I hope and pray that we can truly sing what we have just sung, that in my life I long to follow Jesus. Lord, as we look now into your word, may you increase that longing in our heart. May you work in us that you might receive all the glory and that your glory would be on display in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, he was a little preacher's kid in the Pacific Northwest. He came to Christ at a young age, telling his mother at the age of six, Now, Mama, the Lord Jesus can come whenever he wants. He can take the whole family, because I'm saved now. During his high school years, many noticed his energetic speaking abilities and encouraged him to pursue acting. He rejected such an idea choosing rather to pursue the work of sharing the gospel with those who hadn't heard. He was later encouraged to use those very same gifts to pursue youth ministry here in the States. He declined, stating that the home church was well-fed, desiring rather to bring the gospel to unreached peoples in the world. While guys around him were pursuing girls and desiring relationships, he chose to abstain, telling a friend, domesticated males aren't much use for adventure. So into his college years, he continued to devote himself to the Lord, studying his word, seeking the Lord through prayer, and finding any opportunity he could to share the gospel with those around him. Over the course of time, the Lord led this man to the country of Ecuador to pursue a ministry to a violent and godless people living deep in the jungle. He and his team, which included a missionary-minded woman that he had actually eventually married, made initial contacts that seemed promising. And in January of 1956, part of their team flew into the jungle to make a more direct contact. He and four other men were on that trip, and they never returned, being savagely murdered by the very people that they desired to bring the gospel to. Have you guessed who this young man is that we're talking about here? It's none other than Jim Elliott. There are many ways we could describe Jim Elliott, determined, passionate, Zealous, odd, quirky, maybe. I mean, here's a man with so much talent and abilities. He had such a potential for such a bright future. And what high school guy, or college guy for that matter, refrains from pursuing girls desiring adventure with the Lord over the comfort of relationships? What made a guy like Jim Elliott live life? The way he did. Well, Jim sought to answer that question when he wrote in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
Jim valued the gospel and knowing Christ more than any earthly thing. And as we turn to the third chapter in the letter to the Philippians, Paul warns the Philippians against prioritizing earthly ambitions. And he calls them to value the gospel and knowing Christ, just like Jim did. As I've had opportunity to preach, we have been working our way through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church. In this letter, we've seen a passionate, zealous apostle travel the known world with the news of the gospel. This pursuit of bringing the gospel to the lost has resulted in him ending up in trouble at times. Presently, he's sitting in a Roman prison. In his ministry, he has been supported by a fledgling yet faithful church who has assisted him on more than one occasion. Paul is writing back to that church to thank them for their partnership in the ministry, to update them on his situation, seeking to encourage them through God's means of grace in his trials, and to admonish them to grow in their faithfulness to Christ. This is a call to cherish Christ as supreme, putting them at odds with the world around them. We read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Paul begins this third chapter with the word, finally, which could lead some people to feel like Paul is ready to end his letter to the Philippians. The problem is, is that Philippians goes on for another two chapters, which has led some people to think that maybe he initially wanted to end the, cha- the book here, but then was suddenly distracted with some pressing, important message that he had to write that maybe wasn't a part of his flow and plan for the letter. Some have even suggested that he did end the letter here, but that some later editor decided to add on to what he had written, making the book longer than he had intended. But the word that's translated finally here doesn't need to suggest that the the book is coming to an end. It could simply mean, and now to my next point, or maybe even, and now to my final point that I want to bring before you. The information in chapter 3 flows with the themes and concerns that Paul has expressed in this letter. So we can say that chapter 3 wasn't a sudden afterthought by Paul, but part of Paul's concern for the Philippians and his message that's presented in this letter as a whole. Now, in this section of chapter 3, Paul has a major concern that he wishes to address with the Philippians in this letter. But before he does so, he provides this overreaching call that really expands throughout, is, is, is considered throughout this entire section. And that call is to rejoice in the Lord. Paul has already called the Philippians to rejoice in chapters 1 and 2 as he's considered his own trials. He will call them again to rejoice in chapter 4, but here he specifically calls them to rejoice in the Lord. You see, throughout this letter, Christ has been the source of hope and thanksgiving in the life of Paul. Jesus' humble, sacrificial service is the means of our salvation, as he points out in chapter 2. Christ is the reason for the unity of the body and the partnership that Paul has enjoyed with the Philippians. In the midst of his trials, 
It was Christ that Paul called out to for deliverance, waiting, wanting Christ to be magnified in whatever happened in his life. Paul's entire life was devoted to the Lord. It was for his praise, by his grace, and trusting in his promises. And so, as he begins this section, seeking to address some concerns that he has for the Philippians, he calls them to have this same attitude. And we'll see this played out as the chapter unfolds. He ends chapter, or verse 1 with, To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. What Paul is about to write to the Philippians is not something new for them. It's something they have no doubt considered and discussed with Paul on a number of occasions. But yet, while it's not new, this repeated message was important to their spiritual life. And thus, it was a joy for him to write this message to them again. So as we consider Paul's concern for the Philippians in this chapter, we're going to find three things. First, we're going to see a warning against putting confidence in the flesh in verses 2 and 3. Second, we're going to consider Paul's former life, which was a picture of putting confidence in the flesh in verses 4 through 7. And finally, we're going to see that Paul ultimately rejected his former life, finding infinite value in knowing Christ in verses 8 through 11. Let's first consider his first point then, his warning against putting confidence in the flesh. In verse 2 then, we read, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul's concern here is expressed in three look out statements here. So as Paul considers this group of people that he's concerned about for the Philippians, he first says, look out for the dogs. Now the dogs that Paul is referring to aren't the cute little puppies that are running around in dog parks in our life today, okay? Dogs in ancient Rome were untamed and potentially dangerous animals that roamed the streets. They were undesirable creatures. And even more, Jews who saw themselves as sanctified to God called Gentiles, those unclean, godless people, he called them, they called them dogs in ridicule. So Paul says, watch out for these people, they're dogs. He says to watch out for these evildoers. Paul is concerned with these people and describes them as evildoers in contrast with those who are faithful to God and who honor Him through obedience. And finally, Paul says, look out for these people, for they are those who mutilate the flesh. And here's where the accusation that Paul gives against this group of people gets personal, and it stings. For the word that is translated mutilate in our text here, the Greek word that's translated that is very, very similar to the Greek word that's translated circumcision. And so thus, Paul is playing on words here between mutilate and circumcision. Now, who is this group that Paul is, is criticizing here and is calling out as a, as a group to be concerned about? It's most likely the Judaizers of Paul's day. These are Jewish people who claimed to know Christ, but insisted that any Gentile who wanted to come to Christ must first submit themselves to the Jewish laws, specifically circumcision. 
This was an addition to the gospel, and it was one that Paul would not tolerate. And so he called these Jews, not Gentiles, dogs. These people who seek after righteousness through their own efforts to keep the law, Paul calls them evildoers. And these people who thought that the physical act of circumcision was a means of sanctifying themselves to God, Paul labels them mutilators of the flesh, drawing connections with pagan worshipers who would make cuts on their bodies in false worship. Paul is not having a civil and polite disagreement here with fellow believers. He is accusing the Judaizers of being evildoers and deserving the wrath of God. Their attempt to add religious observances to faith in order to be true believers destroyed the gospel and left them in their sin and in destruction. So in verse 2, Paul says, look out for these people. And then in verse 3, he contrasts them with the true people of God. Where he, for he writes, for we are the circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Unlike these evil mutilators of the flesh, those who put their trust in Christ alone, in the gospel, they are the true circumcision. They are the real people of God who are set apart as holy unto him. Real people of God worship by the Spirit of God. Worship isn't described as a list of rituals that you check off a list, but through communion with the Spirit of God in our hearts. It is a loving, sacrificial service and obedience to the Savior. And the life orientation of these people is for God to be magnified in all that they do. The glory, this glorying in Christ is the opposite of what the Judaizers were doing. God's people put no confidence in the flesh. There is no boasting in oneself. There is no trusting in our own righteousness or our own strength. The people of God boast in Christ alone. Now, as you look at the context of Philippians here, there's no sense that these Judaizers were in the church at Philippi presently wreaking havoc in their midst. But this temptation to add the Jewish traditions onto faith was present in their world at that time, and it was a temptation that tugged at their hearts. Because in our sin, we want to trust our own strength and ability. We want to take pride in doing it ourselves. The idea of believing in Christ, but then showing how we could be really good at following the law, appealed to that prideful, self-determined spirit. Furthermore, these Christian people, believing in this person called Jesus, that was new to the Roman Empire. And Rome didn't like new. New was a potential threat to their rule. Thus, Christians were viewed with suspicion and treated at many times with hostility. The Jewish faith was an old and established faith. Nothing for Rome to be worried about here, so to speak. By adding some Jewish traditions, a Christian could stand out a little less and not experience so much ridicule. So there was a temptation to enjoy the comfort this had to offer. Now, none of us here today, I suspect, are wrestling with this idea of adding circumcision to the gospel. <laughs> but 
there is a, there's that same similar temptation that we can struggle in our own hearts. Do you have a sense that you need to perform a little better before you come to Christ in faith? As a Christian, do you adhere to a list of stringent rules in order to boast in your ability to walk faithfully before God? Is there a temptation to believe in Christ, but to also maybe seek to blend in a little bit with our culture to avoid so much ridicule? These are all temptations from a sinful heart, and they seek to glory in ourselves, and it destroys the gospel. So rather than trusting our flesh, and seeking to glory in our own accomplishments. We are to rejoice in the Lord. We are to worship Him with a heart that is transformed by His Spirit. We are to boast in what He is doing and not seek our own glory. So Paul warned against this diluting of the gospel through trusting in, by putting confidence in the flesh. He now shows us that his former life pictured what putting confidence in the flesh looked like. We read in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. One might hear Paul's objections to trusting in human efforts to please God and think, well, you obviously weren't very good at it, so that's why you're so negative about it. (laughs) But they'd be completely wrong about Paul. I want you to consider this example. When I was younger, I was on a baseball team. Now, I wasn't really good at baseball. In fact, I was perfectly terrible at baseball. During my last year of playing in elementary school, I struck out every single time except for once. I hit the ball, and it was a foul ball. (laughs) I struck out time and time again. And when we weren't at bat, we were out in the field, and I was way out in field. The coach was a smart one. He put me so far out in left field that if the ball ever came to reach my position, the batter was probably already at home plate anyway, so it really didn't matter. It was a really terrible year for me as a player, and it was probably terrible for my parents as well and other fans who were watching us play. Now imagine, if you will, that you were a parent of another child on my team, and you watched me struggle throughout the whole season. And at the end, you were talking with me, and you hear me say, you know, I think baseball is a really worthless sport. You would, would you take much stock in what I was saying in that moment? No, of course not. You would say, baseball isn't the problem here. You're just really bad at baseball. But now I want you to imagine that you were walking down the streets of St. Paul and you bump into Joe Maurer. Joe Maurer was a great baseball player. He made a living playing professional baseball. You strike up a conversation with Joe and you hear him say, you know, I think baseball is a really worthless sport. That would turn your head. 
you would want to listen to more of what he's saying. That would be shocking coming from Joe Maurer. Well, in a sense, that's what's happening here with Paul. Paul is not arguing from a position of failure in human terms. In fact, as he states in verse 4, if anyone was able to boast in their achievements, it was him. So what were Paul's earthly achievements? Well, ironically, as the Judaizers were so concerned about circumcision, where does Paul start? With circumcision. He says in verse 5, I was circumcised the eighth day. Paul is not a proselyte who came to faith later. He wasn't circumcised at some later point. He was born into the Jewish faith, and his family was faithful to the law from the very beginning of his life. They brought him before the Lord on the eighth day of life to circumcise him. Paul says he was of the people of Israel. Paul was able to trace his family lineage back to the the people of Israel. And not only that, he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's able to to trace his family line not just back to Israel as a whole, but to the tribe his family came from. And it was Benjamin, the tribe that didn't abandon the Davidic king, but remained a part of the southern kingdom of Judah. Paul said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, this could mean a number of different things, but it it very likely noted the fact that his family wasn't just resting in their blood lineage as Jewish people, but they were faithful to keep the Jewish traditions of their ancestors. This is in contrast to Hellenistic Jews who adopted much of Greek culture in the way they live. Not Paul. Paul was a Jewish Jew. He says, as to the law, he was a Pharisee. If you were to wonder how faithful Paul was to the law, all you have to do is see the fact that he was a Pharisee. These were people with the strictest interpretation and adherence to the law. If any, of anyone, the Pharisees were the best at keeping the law, or at least their own understanding of it. Paul says, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. More than being a Pharisee, Paul was so passionate about obeying God and making sure that others did too that when he saw a rogue group of Jewish people following someone that he thought was a false prophet, he didn't merely have a few words with them. No, he was willing to see them thrown into prison and even killed for it. And finally, he says, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. This is the pinnacle of his description of his confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul isn't professing complete sinlessness here. Paul writes in other writings that the law cannot produce righteousness and that it is impossible to perfectly keep the whole law. But again, Paul was a Pharisee. And Pharisees had emphasized certain aspects of the law, such as circumcision, dietary laws, ritual cleanings, Sabbath observances, just to name a few. In regards to these, Paul was blameless. And believe me, this was no small feat. There were so many detailed rules to follow. And he was faithful to follow the Pharisees' interpretation of these laws. And to an observer of Paul's life, there was no blame to be found. So if there was anyone on earth who could have confidence in the flesh, if there was anyone who could appear to earn the favor of God through earthly status and accomplishments, it was Paul. 
But it's that fact that makes his criticism of Judaizers so powerful. And the next line in, his, in this chapter here drives that opposition home. Because he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul seemed to have so much going for him in life. But then Damascus happened. Paul encountered Christ, and Paul was saved. Saved from his sins and saved from striving to earn what he could never achieve, to know God. And so Paul, in his former life before Christ, he would have seen these elements of his life as gain, as benefits in pursuit of God. But as we transition to our third point this morning, verse 7 helps us understand that Paul ultimately found such accomplishments to be nothing compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ. And that infinite value of knowing Christ is explained for us here in verses 8 through 11. We read, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Having responded to the gospel, Paul sees his former life very differently. He describes the value of that former life in a set of three increasingly intense terms. First, we saw in verse 7, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Adopting language that might be used in financial terms, he claims that while at one point he counted his accomplishments as gains, as benefits, as something to be put in the asset column, they are now considered loss, to have no value at all. In verse 8, he, he intensifies that by saying, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He broadens his description to include all things, not simply Jewish heritage and accomplishments, but anything that might rival Christ as a means for pleasing God. Anything that Paul might want to boast in, he now considers loss as worthless. And then in the second half of verse 8, he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Not only does Paul consider them to be a loss, but he has actually given them up. He has suffered the loss of them. Paul willingly gave up his life as a Pharisee in order to live for Christ. And not only did he willingly give these things up, he counts them as rubbish. Now again, the Greek word that is translated rubbish for us here could have a, a number of different possible meanings. The King James translates it dung. And this term could be used to consider the former achievements in Jewish life to be nothing more than a pile of excrement in the street. 
could also be considered waste, to be thrown out into the streets, often to be consumed by dogs. And if this is Paul's intention here to to refer to it as waste, it's possible that this is another jab at the Judaizers, who he just a few verses ago called dogs. These Jewish accomplishments in attempt to earn favor with God are nothing more than a pile of scraps to be thrown out to a bunch of ravenous dogs. Regardless of what Paul's specific meaning in the use of this word, I think the language is pretty clear. Paul has given up any privilege in his former life. He has given up his position and his way of life because he sees that way of life as worthless. So having described the worthlessness of his human attempts to please God, he next turns to what he truly values. And again, he describes it in a set of three. So in verse 7, he says that he, he considers his former life, life worthless. Why? For the sake of Christ. In verse 8, he expands on that and says it's for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He, say, I can, he says, I continue to count my human efforts to boast in the flesh and to gain favor with God as worthless. Why? Because it can't possibly compare with the value of knowing Christ, of having a relationship with him. And thirdly, at the end of verse 8, Paul says that his goal is to gain Christ and to be found in him. So Paul, Paul here is saying, I willingly give up everything I have, the wretched rubbish I once held on to, in order to get something. And that is Jesus Christ and to be found in him. So Paul here describes in a threefold cascade of increasingly intensifying description the worthlessness of confidence in the flesh, of any attempts to please God, and the immense value of knowing Christ, of of gaining Christ, of knowing Him and being found in Him. Before we move on to these final verses in this section and seek to unpack the meaning of these phrases, knowing God and being found in Him, Do we see that this is the point of this entire section? Paul warned them against the Judaizers and their attempts to add ritualistic observances to the gospel because they're of no value in the pursuit of knowing God. They don't produce results. And they're actually deterring people away from the goal of knowing God. Paul's example of his previous life is to show that he's been there. He at one point tried to know God through his own achievements. And it isn't possible. Isaiah speaks of these same ideas when in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, We have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And Jesus speaks to this reality as well when he says in Matthew 6, 24 through 26, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So our goal in life should be the same as that of Paul's. 
to know Jesus Christ and to be found in Him. Now, perhaps there's someone here this morning who would say, I don't want to know Christ. I don't want to know anything about Him. I want to live my life for my own enjoyments and to do whatever I want. If this is you this morning, understand that to pursue life without God first is to pursue no pleasure at all. For the things of this life are worthless compared to Christ. And second of all, your strivings are a pursuit of ultimate destruction in your life. You need Christ. And you can know Him. You can be found in Him. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're someone who says, well, um, I would like to know God, and and I'm really trying hard to, to live a good life to please Him. Maybe you haven't chosen the following of, Jew, of Jewish laws and observances like the temptation was for Paul's readers in their day. But you are striving in other ways to do what you think is right, to earn a good standing for yourself. Maybe that, that starts off first by fighting sin in your own life. You see undesirable things in yourself and you're, you're trying to reform yourself to make yourself a better you. Or maybe you might have Pick the social issue that you just really care about. And so you want to use the goodness in you to make a difference in your community and in society as a whole. So you volunteer at a Habitat for Humanity and build houses for people who are less fortunate. Or you take a stance on the social justice issue and seek to, uh, to affect change both in your community and, and at the, in the country as a, as a whole. Or maybe you're taking efforts to reduce your carbon footprint in order to fight global climate change, and you're pushing others to join the fight. Now understand that some of the things I've mentioned here might have good elements to them. Indeed, for those of us who know Christ, we are called to be positive influences in the world. We're called to be salt and to strive for a growing sense of faithfulness in our lives. We are called to put off sin. But you can't do these things to gain Christ. In doing these things, you can't enter uh, a relationship with God. So if you're trying to earn favor with God by adding these things to your spiritual asset columns, you're simply adding piles of dung to that column. Your efforts have no value at all. So what does have value? knowing Christ and being found in Him. But what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, in verses 9 through 11, we see a description of these things. First, we see that knowing Christ means finding your righteousness in the right place. God is a holy God, and He demands holiness and righteousness from His people. But if I can't earn righteousness through my own efforts, how can I be righteous in God's eyes? The answer is through faith. In verse 9 we read, and so the goal is to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Our good deeds can never outweigh our sinfulness. That's why Jesus came. 
that, we may, that he may live a sinless life and then die to take the punishment for our sins. So that those who trust in Christ, who put their confidence in him, will find their sins washed away through his sacrifice on the cross. They are then covered with Christ's righteousness. So then we can stand before God clean, with no sin, because Christ took it on the cross. But that requires you to have faith in something outside of yourself. It requires you to acknowledge your utter depravity and your inability to save yourself. It requires you to fall on Christ in desperate need. So knowing Christ means finding our righteousness in the right place. Second of all, it means knowing the power of his resurrection. You see, knowing Christ means having a personal relationship with him. And that relationship is based on the transforming power he works in us when we put our faith in Christ. When we understand that our works of righteousness can't save us, and that indeed, uh, and instead trust in Christ's work on the cross, Christ does an amazing work in our lives. Not only does he cleanse us from our sin, but our old sinful self is put to death and Christ gives us a new spiritual life in him. Paul mentions this in verse 10 when he says, we are becoming like him in his death. We are dead to our old selves and alive to God through his Spirit's power in us. We have a new heart with desires that increasingly look like God's, and that's hating sin and loving God and his ways. We are no longer slaves to sin, As the Spirit of God comes to dwell in our hearts, we have the power of God to resist sin and to find victory in that fight. This power that is in work in us has a beginning at the point of coming to faith, but it is increasing in measure. Paul referenced this when in the opening chapter of Philippians, he says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So to know Christ... And to be found in him is to know this powerful transformation in your life. It's initial transforming power at the point of salvation. And it's continuing work in our lives. Finally, knowing Christ means sharing in his sufferings. You know, you get to know someone when you experience life together. Especially if you've experienced a really significant moment in life together. It might be a really fantastic moment, like marriage or the giving of uh, the birth of a child. But even if we share a really terrible moment together, it seals that bonds of relationship as we understand one another. Christ has suffered so much for us that we might have life. He left his glorious throne in heaven to experience all the pains and sufferings of this life. He experienced repeated ridicule from his own people, and ultimately he was shamefully beaten and nailed to a cross and left to hang there to die. The means of granting us life was difficult for him. And Paul in Philippians 1, 29 says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that not only should you believe in him, but you should also suffer for his sake. Believers in Christ are going to suffer. And when they do, they share in Christ's suffering. 
Now, our suffering doesn't earn our salvation, but it's a shared experience. As we suffer with the one who suffered for us, our relationship grows. Our affections for Christ increase. We grow to love him more and more. Knowing Christ is more valuable than anything else that this world can offer. So in pursuit of knowing Christ initially and in a continuing increasing measure, our suffering with Christ shows that we truly value knowing him. And as we value Christ above all else, we share in his sufferings and grow in our love and relationship with him. So we've seen in this passage this morning a warning against putting confidence in the flesh. We've seen Paul's life as an example of what putting confidence in the flesh looked like. And we see Paul's life, he ultimately rejected his former life, finding infinite value in Christ. With the few minutes we have left this morning, I I want us just to consider a few points of application. First of all, this morning we have considered the gospel. We have considered the value of knowing Christ and being found in him. We have talked about how we can grow in that relationship. I hope this isn't the first time you've heard this message. And whether it is or not, I pray that by God's grace, it won't be the last. Paul, at the beginning of this passage, said, It is no trouble for me to write this message to you, and it is safe for you. Let me talk to children here for just a few minutes, okay? Children, you probably have heard messages from the Bible from your parents over and over and over and over again. And understand that this is the grace of God in your life. For your parents to repeat God's truth to you over and over again is not a trouble to them, and it is safe for you. So I would encourage you to listen to them. Let the word of truth that they are speaking into your life affect your heart, and by God's grace, may it spur growth in spiritual life for you. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, we have talked about the value of knowing Christ. Maybe you are seeking to gain that relationship through your your own efforts. It won't work out. You can't reach Christ with your good deeds. You need to humbly come to Christ, find salvation from your sins in him, and experience the power of his resurrection as he transforms your life, putting your sinful self to death and giving you new life in Christ. So I would encourage you to place your faith in him today. And if you have any questions about the gospel or about the value of knowing Christ, please talk with someone today. For those of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior, this passage was written to Paul's brother, his brothers in Christ. This is a message for believers, and it's a message of warning, and it's also a reminder of the value of knowing Christ. So Christ has begun a good work in you, and he desires to see you grow. What value are you assigning to knowing Christ? Is it worth the loss of everything? There are temptations to blend into our culture today for the comfort of life. 
And to do so, often it means forsaking the Word of God. And we're assigning more value to those things than to Christ when we do those things. God's plan will look different for each one of us. He's not calling us all to be a Jim Elliot or an Apostle Paul, but he's asking us to value him above anything else. So could you give it all up for Christ? Or would you be like the rich young ruler who heard Christ's call to sell it all and walked away disappointed? So I could ask you, are you willing to give it all? And that's a really really hard thing to answer maybe. Let's think more practically about just what it means for our lives as we desire to value Christ together. Well, first of all, if you value knowing Christ, are you spending time day in and day out in faithful and diligent pursuit of God through His Word and through prayer? Do you understand that so much of what God is doing in this world is through His church? As we are the fellowship of His body, we have opportunities to see the power of His resurrection in our lives. And we serve and maybe at times suffer alongside with Christ and His people. So are you orienting your life to the life of the church? Now, I know we all have busy schedules in life, and I'm, I'm glad that you're making sure you're here on a Sunday morning for, for morning worship. But maybe you struggle to gather with God's people at other times and occasions. I would just ask you that as you seek to know God more, you can do that through fellowship with His people. And so I'd encourage you to orient your life to the life of the church, that you'd make church life the priority in your life and in your schedule so that God might use his church to deepen your relationship with him. Are you giving sacrificially to the ministry of the church? Are you holding loosely to the things of this world that have no value compared to Christ? Are you sharing the gospel with someone that you are pursuing in a desire that they might know Christ too. These are things that we should all be seeking to do as we pursue knowing Christ more and more. We know Christ more and more through our experience of the power of his resurrection, but also through the sharing of his sufferings. So don't shy away from those things. When suffering happens, know that Christ has suffered too. And he suffered for the joy of bringing lost souls to life. He suffered so that you might know him. So in your suffering, as you suffer with Christ, may that suffering grow your love for him and your affections for your Savior. And as we are believers, it is vital that we continue to keep this truth of the gospel with one an uh, in front of one another as we pursue knowing him more. So may this message continue to be on our lips as we seek to build up one another in love. Jim Elliot died an untimely death. His life was so vastly different from others around him. Was he simply odd? No. He was valuing Christ, knowing Christ, both for himself and for others that would come to know him more than anything else in this world. And he gave up what he couldn't keep to gain what he could never lose. 
And this is all leading to something. The effort to know Christ now is leading to one day knowing him face to face. And Paul desired that day, even as he writes in verse 11 of this chapter, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul didn't know whether he was going to die and meet Christ or whether he'd meet him in the clouds. But he knew that one day he would know the resurrection of Christ as he saw him face to face. So let us seek to know Christ now as we long for that day as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can come before you this morning and and not have to rely on our own efforts to know you more because we know we couldn't do that. Thank you that we can know you as our Lord and Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would use even our time this morning in the Word. Lord, may you continue to use the life and fellowship of this church to help us know you more and to, to glory in Christ and to rejoice in you as we long for that day when we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.